0: Hey there, Next Picture Show listeners. For those of you who may have missed the announcement on last week's episode, we had to shift our upcoming schedule of episodes just a little bit, and so we decided to once again bring an episode that we recorded for our Patreon page out from behind the paywall so that you can enjoy it here on the main feed. I will let Keith explain it from here, and we will be back next week
1: with a new pairing. All right, welcome to a special episode of The Next Picture Show. My name is Keith Phipps. I have, I have convened a council of uh, fans of a particular movie, and I'll, I'll walk us up to this here. Uh, longtime listeners of the show know that Tasha Robinson will, at any opportunity to talk about the 2008 film, The Fall, by Ter Simpson. And I'm also a dedicated listener of a podcast called the Flophouse, uh, which is hosted by Dan McCoy, Stuart Wellington, and our special guest tonight, Elliot Kalin. Mr. Kalin here has served as uh, the head writer of The Daily Show and Mystery Science Theater 3000. And uh, the my, my kid's favorite of your uh, shows, The Who Was Show, And also the author of the books uh, Horse Meets Dog, Shark and Hippo, and the forthcoming comic Maniac of New York, which sounds uh, pretty amazing. Uh, Elliot Kalen, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk about The Fall, a movie that I am also prone to bringing up on my podcast, To the Bafflement. And total inability to talk about it at my co-hosts because they, they did not see it.
1: That was just it. I I felt like I had to bring two fall super fans to the show. And I have watched the film now too, after years of being told to watch it uh, by Tasha. And indirectly encouraged by you, Elliot. Uh, so uh, I guess we'll just talk about this. I'll just ask you if, uh, right off the bat, what about this movie? What, what What is it so deeply appealing to each of you?
0: Elliot, I am so excited to be another Fall Super fan. Most of the Fall Super fans I know are people I have sat down and showed this movie to. So I'm I'm just really curious to hear from you, uh, like, how you came to it, how long you've been a fan, and what is it about it for you?
2: Oh, sure, sure. I mean, yeah, it's I'm excited, too, because the only other big fan of the movie I know is my wife. And we happened to see it during its very short theatrical run. And it was literally like one of these magical pre COVID, pre my having children times when we said, hey, we should go out to a movie tonight. What movie should we see? And Roger Ebert's review of the fall had come out. And he basically said in it, I don't know if you're going to like this movie, but you're never going to see a movie like this again. And It was playing at the since past Sunshine Theater on Houston Street in uh, New York City in Manhattan, and uh, it was on Houston, right? Anyway, that's the th- maybe it was, was it Houston or No, it was Houston. I think. Anyway, that's the least important thing anyone needs to know. What street a theater that's not there anymore was on, uh, <laughs> and they were also showing 2001: A Space Odyssey that at midnight. And I said, let's go see both of these movies. Uh, one of them I have never seen, and the other one I've seen a bunch of times. And we went to go see The Fall, and we were both so just like mesmerized by it. And partly visually, because it's, visually it's gorgeous. And there are so many moments in it where you're like, I don't know how they accomplished that uh, without like, having all the resources of a major studio behind them. But also, like, the story is this very, like, almost deliberately messy and emotionally messy story. And it felt very powerful to us. And the end of the movie, spoiler alert, but the end of the movie, you're literally watching just... Scenes of stunts from silent comedies in a montage with music playing over it and I was crying so hard because it was like (laughs) – it just like hit me so hard that the the feelings that the characters in the movie had invested these moments with and – then of, and then we were both blown away, and I was like, "Just wait till we watch 2001 at midnight." And she hated it so much, and so <laughs> oh,
0: no. so and and uh,
2: and so with the fall we had we I bought it on DVD as soon as it came out on DVD, and then lent it to somebody and never got it back, and had to order a, a Blu-ray from Korea for to watch it again for this. And we sat down to watch it, my wife and I, and she was like, "This is, I think, maybe my favorite." experience in a movie theater followed by my least favorite experience in a movie theater like this in the same night (laughs) Be
1: fair i think 2001 is is one of my favorite movies but it's also a terrible midnight movie i so so so. i
2: love it so much and it was like that at that point that was the third or fourth time i had seen it in a theater and so Mm -hmm. i think i had forgotten i was just waiting for the like the big moments that were very exciting to me and it's yeah it was very late to see a movie that i don't know that she was really gonna love even on like mm. at a normal hour, um, but there was just that. Like the fall is just always stuck with me, and I'm curious what what your experience was like seeing it. But that like it was really true. Like I'd never seen a movie like that before, and a movie that pulled off such a strange feat in that way. And I haven't really seen anything like it since then. And knowing like what a passion project it was for Tarsim Singh, and like I know. And now every time I see Lee Pace in anything, he's yeah. the guy from the fall. Like, when it, you know, in Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm like, well, I guess I got to see this because the guy from the fall is in it, you know, like it has got
1: mm-hmm. the
0: fall guy. It's got the fall. Yeah, we just we have to call him the fall <laughs> we, guy.
2: Yeah,
1: we should briefly talk about and I want to hear Tasha. I want to hear your experiences, but we should briefly talk about what the film is. Uh, the premise is fairly simple the execution is extremely, extremely complicated (laughs) and elaborate. And that itself is a story I'm sure we'll get into as well. But essentially this Lee pace plays a, uh, a stunt film actor in silent films year in the year, 1918 uh, in Los Angeles, who is recuperating, from uh, one of the, the many falls, the, the most literal, uh, one of two very literal falls in, in, the, uh, in the film. And as he recuperates, he's, he's nursing a broken heart because his girlfriend has left him for the, if I follow this correctly, the star of the film, right?
2: Yes, the, guy, the
1: man he yeah. was stunted yeah. for.
0: It, I don't, right, I don't exactly. know that it's clear that, he was, that, that she was ever his girlfriend. He has, a, he has a passion for the leading lady on the film, and the leading lady is, right. uh, has a passion for the leading man on a film.
2: It's very possible that like with many men who are interested in film he has decided he's in love with a woman and is mad that she mm. does not feel that way about him. It's already there's one moment where she is the, she is outside the hospital and she does not go in to visit him and it's unclear exactly what she's feeling at that moment, you know.
0: It's it's kind of unclear right. whether she even knows he exists.
2: Yes, the, he may just be the guy who got hurt on her movie. That's true. And she doesn't really know much else about him. That's possible.
1: There's a lot about this film that it doesn't explain to viewers. It kind of drops you in the deep end in some ways. Again, as simple as the basic setup is. So to continue that, uh, he is visited by a a young girl of Hungarian descent, right? I got that right, right? Hungarian, Romanian? Romanian. I think Romanian, yeah. Romanian descent, named uh, Alexandria, played by Katinka Untaru, who is um, about four or five when they made this, right? Uh,
0: Four when they started planning it, six when they shot it, I believe
1: got it okay and and over there as as he visits her he tells her stories which are then enacted and wizard of oz style the people in the stories are played in her mind by people that she's encountered in real
2: yeah, life yeah that he's telling he's telling her stories but we're seeing her interpretation of them so when he says an indian even though he's using words mm-hmm. like squaw she's imagining one of the indians from india that she knows from the orange groves that she works in the men who also work there so it's like that's one of those things every now and then in the movie you have to do that math of like, okay, he's saying this thing, but she's applying the things she knows from her life onto it, and it's coming out this way. Um, but anyway, there's no reason for me to bring that
1: up now. Let's. <laughs> you should finish the plot. Well, that's basically yeah. Except he's he's trying to manipulate her into providing enough morphine to kill himself because he is very depressed because of the heartbreak of the woman who may or may not know he exists, as you pointed out. And that's the ethnicity thing. I mean, that is the basic setup.
0: I I think it's it's worth knowing, especially for some things we're going to talk about later, that in addition to being depressed about the woman, he's depressed because he he engaged in a particularly dangerous version of a stunt that he was supposed to do, mm. and he may have broken his back. He seems to be paralyzed from the waist down. So he's bedridden. His future is extremely uncertain he believes that he's he's lost this woman and so he makes multiple attempts throughout the film to kill himself with alexandria's unwitting help
1: exactly and, and again i'm i was unclear on the nature of the nature of his injuries and i believe that's not actually ever fully explained in the film itself it's that kind of movie in that way so tasha tell me about your experiences with this film though i believe you uh saw it reviewed it and interviewed Charleston uh, Singh at the time, right?
0: Yeah, that's one of the big reasons that it was so memorable for me was I I saw it and I was just blown away by it because I have a passion for stories about storytelling. I, I love clever meta aspects in stories, which is one thing that we talked about a great deal when we were talking about uh, Charlie Kaufman's movies very recently. And this is inherently a story about the power of storytelling. Uh, it's about the power of storytelling to manipulate. It's about the power of Storytelling to deceive. It's the power of storytelling to save a life, to kind of uh, recontextualize things going on in the real world in ways that can be someone's literal emotional destruction or salvation. And it's also just about the, as Elliot was saying, it, we we get these sort of uh, visual references indicating that the story being told is not exactly the story being received in a way that is just very unusual for film that I found very clever. It's also, it was shot in more than 20 different locations around the world. Tarson was a commercial director at the time, and he kind of piggybacked the production of this film on with his uh, commercial projects. So he would go to these lavish locations to film a a perfume ad or a Chanel ad or whatever. And then he would (laughs) ship uh, his stars to wherever he was shooting and grab a a scene for the film like over the course of more than a decade that's how he made this movie so the actual experience of watching the movie was just sort of like baffling and exciting because it was like nothing i'd ever seen before either visually or narratively and then i talked to him and it turned into one of those interviews that i i think they gave me half an hour on the phone and we ended up talking for an hour and a half uh that Interview is still on the AV Club. Uh, I think the formatting has gone wonky over, you know, three or four different server Mm -hmm. migrations and and layout changes. But the text is still in there. And (laughs) this man has one of the most insane life stories I've ever heard in terms of wanting to be a film director. And his very traditional Indian father wanted him to be a doctor, a lawyer. And so he played along until he could run away to uh, another country and go to. School, which his brother financed uh, by by working, and then he turned around and supported his brother so his brother could get a degree, and then like this insane around the world experience with this movie. All of the behind the scenes stories for how they made this film are similarly insane. And just uh, talking to this man, I have I have come to think throughout my career that no matter how good or bad a film is there are behind the scenes stories that are probably better than the film itself and in this case it was just the combination of the, the the pretty remarkable and unusual film and the incredibly remarkable and unusual stories behind it just i really fell for it
2: and he financed the he financed the whole film himself too or yeah, in
0: sort of in bits and pieces, uh, in between other things. The the stuff with um the young Romanian girl was all shot as close together as possible. Uh, but I believe at that point they already had the rest of it assembled. They already had all of the kind of around the world stuff with the uh the team of imaginary uh people within the story. Uh and so he he knew that he could go ahead with the part that was going to involve shooting with her as rapidly as possible because he was really obsessed with this idea that the longer the shooting took uh the more english she would come to understand the more she would come to be an actress the less authentic she would be and he didn't want a child actor he wanted a child to be experiencing uh, the story and this constructed narrative that he'd built expressly around her mm-hmm.
1: yeah watching the film you really got you're, you're very much aware of what is what we're used to seeing from children on film and what children are actually like in real life and what a big divide there is between those two
2: yeah she's that's i saw it you know, long before I had a family of my own. But now my son is about her age. And it's very Mm. funny to see just the way like there are scenes in the movie where it's clear that she was not paying attention for a moment, and is now and is now like, huh, what? Yeah. And like, just that it's like, Oh, yeah, this is a real kid on film and not like a super poised like Haley Joel Osment kid where you're like, Mm. like, you're like the creepiest thing about this movie isn't the ghost that this kid is, is like an adult who's like acting like a kid. This is like a kid who's acting like, not saying anything bad about Haley Joel Osment. I've never met him. I'm sure he's a, a very nice guy. But uh, like, it feels like, uh, yeah, you're watching this incredibly elaborate fantasy that has at its heart, like a very realistic kid who's who's having a real moment uh, in a way that, it makes me wonder like, what I don't know anything else about her life or where she is now or anything like that and what what she thinks about the experience or, or the movie now cuz she'd be what, like a teenager
0: by this point I guess I would think so oh, yeah that would be fascinating I mean the as uh, fascinating as Adventures of Baron Munchausen the Terry Gilliam film is it kind of changed the movie for everyone when Sarah Polly, as a a young woman kind of talked about what her memories of that experience was like mm-hmm. and what what she remembered from that set, it would, I'm I, I'm afraid that it might ruin it for me if I knew what she remembered from this movie. I I hope that she was treated better and never felt as endangered as Sarah Polly did.
2: I hope so. Uh, obviously, I hope no one's ever feeling endangered ever. I don't want to make it feel like it's just, just her. I'm hoping that way, but yeah, it's uh, <laughs> there are fewer stunts for her to do.
0: I guess that is true. It's only emotionally uh, traumatizing. And there are some pretty emotionally (laughs) traumatizing moments in this film. This film goes to a very dark place, as you would expect from a movie that a a good part of it is about somebody trying to manipulate a vulnerable child into helping him kill himself. It's... uh, I mean, it's a very raw film in some places for something that's so artful and mannered and in many ways, like removed from anything resembling real life. It taps into some really ugly and painful places at times.
1: Yeah. Uh, guys, Ken, K- Katinka Ntaru is uh, 23 years old and uh, she is on Twitter, although she does not tweet very often, apparently. Mm. Oh, all
2: wow.
1: Right. That's, that's all I can tell you about what she's what she's doing now.
0: Huh. Well, I, think, I guess I'm going to go have to Twitter stalk her. Yeah, like, like this, a complete this, weirdo this that gray then.
2: zone between reporting and cyber stalking. That uh, that I think yes. we all live in now.
0: <laughs> it's you're right. Yes,
2: exactly. There's a sequence where he's really mad. He's at his lowest ebb, and he's essentially wrecking the story as revenge for her not being able to get him the the thing that he wants, and also out of you know self pity. Basically, it's the it's uh, Charles Foster Kane wrecking his wife's room and hurting himself, and like I can't have what I want, so I'm just gonna tear this whole thing down. And it's a really rough sequence that even watching it again this time, and I've seen the movie. A number of times, like it's still, it's always hard for me to watch that sequence because, in a way, it's a more painful experience to see these fictional characters in the fantasy within the movie hurt because you know that it's a story being told to a to a kid, and she's reacting so honestly to it. And it's just a yeah, it's a it's a rough section. So I guess what we're saying is the movie has a lot of contrast. It's got a lot of beauty and a lot mm-hmm. of ugliness, and that's part of its power. Uh, certainly not what I expected when uh it's it, one nothing I, I would expect from from Tarsum's other movies too where it, it's like kind of similar visually, but this one has like i feel like an emotional depth to it that his other stuff has not had the chance to have
0: yeah i have been i mean i have been watching him and and waiting for quite some time for him to produce something else that feels remotely like this in terms of a passion or commitment and he he kind of went to a, a kind of a commercial place i guess mm-hmm. where people keep handing him movies to direct i think based on the visuals here and he still has a, a pretty incredible eye for uh, vividly especially lit and choreographed and designed images but none of his movies past this one have really had much emotional content that landed. I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We should touch on his other work real quickly. Uh, this is a second feature, and one reason I didn't really seek it out is because I really did not care for his first feature, *The Cell*, which was Jennifer Lopez enters the mind of a serial killer played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, there, and he's got like yeah. hooks
2: on his back with long flowing capes attached, mm. and she's like in a cage, and it's the one where where Jennifer Lopez has like a long ponytail sticking right out of her head, like Shatterstar from X Force.
0: And uh, yeah, it's it's and the entire movie feels like it's just set up to allow for elaborate dream sequences. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and
1: that stuff's kind of interesting, but but the plot is is really dopey. And before that, he'd done music videos, most famously uh, "Losing My Religion" by R. E. M., which you can see echoes of that in a couple of shots here. But since then, yeah, I haven't seen any of his movies: "Immortals," "Mirror Mirror," "Selfless," just a blank zone to me. Anything to recommend them besides just occasional striking image in those? Not no,
0: really. I mean, I've I've seen mm. them all because I will never not watch a Tarsim movie just in case. And they've all just got a, a kind of like inertness to them that's frustrating and strange. They're they're all very strangely bland for all of the the really vivid imagery in them.
2: Yeah, and I wonder if there's, it's either a case of like, he's like, look, this is not my story, so I don't need to, I'm, I'm not going to invest entirely in it. Or if he just like is drained for like The Fall is the kind of movie that I can imagine drains you for, Decades afterwards, possibly, mm-hmm. or just like I feel like there was a probably a moment after Rob De Niro made Raging Bull where he was like, oh, Okay, I did all this stuff to like change my body for this role to get inside this character, and what I get out of it, I guess I made a movie. And so at that point <laughs> on, he kind of like, or, or a little bit later, he kind of checked out at a certain point where it was like, This is not worth the work that I'm putting into a lot of it. And I think that, uh, I wonder if it's just like to invest so much of yourself into a movie and then to see it kind of not really have much of an impact at all might have had that that like kind of turning off effect in his head.
0: Yeah, it made something like $3 million in theatrical release. It's not available streaming anywhere, as far as I can tell. It's basically your only option to watch it is to buy the DVD. Yeah, and
2: the, the American DVD it's is out of, out of print. Yeah, they, I mean, if you're looking for a copy of it, and I recommend it, then go on eBay and buy a Blu-ray from South Korea, which is what I did, and the, the disc I got back was great, but... I was I wanted to replace the DVD I had bought, and it was just too expensive to, to get. Like a used Blockbuster copy was, you know, much more than I was expecting to spend for a DVD. It's just hard to find. I just checked in know.
0: on Amazon just before we were uh, we started recording this, and it seemed like it was available. Oh, really? Hmm. For uh, pretty much retail value.
1: Oh, I was thinking for uh, it and in, I in find your choice
0: it. of DVD, Blu-ray, or or VHS. <laughs>
1: There was a VHS. Release? Out there? Oh, wow. They, oh, they, it had to be the very yeah, end of the VHS era. I think the last one the last VHS produced commercially was End of Violence, which was like 20, 2009. So that's to be like the very end of the VHS era, right?
0: There was a warning in there that there's only one VHS copy left. Oh, so okay. if you're hearing this <laughs> and uh you know you love your your VHS player, like like rush, yeah, rush hurry. don't run, don't walk.
2: <laughs> run, don't walk to your local a uh, computer or or perhaps abandoned blockbuster and see if see if the tape is still there <laughs> in a cabinet. I also
1: remember, remember Tarsum Singh was, was really aggressive in promoting this as well because I, I this my my story of not seeing the fall is I went to see some other movie. I forget what it was. Uh, but was he, he there
0: at the theater? He was at the
1: theater? You? No, he was at the theater with like a group of people, like like gathered around him, sitting cross-legged as he talked about the film. You know, I guess he he hosted the screening and people stuck around to talk to, him, which I thought was a lovely gesture. But uh, wow, yeah. I
0: thought I was kidding.
1: No, he was there. Uh, yeah, so I think it was probably when he was in. Well, you talked to him by phone though, so he was in Chicago promoting it.
0: Yeah, I, I talked to him via phone. I mean, he was, I guess I don't want to say aggressive because that sounds bad, but it reminded me of uh, the Wachowski siblings and their promotion of Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a feeling there of we've got to go further with pushing this. We've, we've mm-hmm. got to go all out. Um, they've avoided press forever. They've avoided doing interviews or, or talking to the media if they could get away with it. But with Cloud Atlas, they were like, they invested a ton of their own money into this project. They really needed it to, to take take off. And I kind of got the same feeling with him here. It's just like, this was a labor of love that took over a decade. He did put his all into it. Like, of course, he's going to do whatever he can to to give it a push.
1: I think that's a good comparison, too, because I think Atlas Cloud, uh, Cloud, is a movie I admire a lot. I like a lot. And, and, and But it's also got a lot of rough edges. I think this one does, too. I mean, I don't mean that as an insult, but I did have a hard time getting on its wavelength at first. Once I did, I thought it was a really powerful experience, but uh, just kind of following the basics of the plot, uh, there's sort of, he takes like a really Altman-esque approach to overlapping dialogue or some stuff is very low in the mix. That seems like pretty crucial information that you kind of have to really be paying very close attention to, to figure out what's going on. And as we talked about, there's even even at that point, some ambiguities as to, as to what, what happened here. Do, do you think it was, I mean, it certainly has a uh, you know a fervent cult following i'm talking to two members of it now but is is it a film that was ever going to reach a wider audience than than the people who saw it as you know kind of latched on to it
2: i think very unlikely i think it's the kind mm. of movie that might have hit got a hit audience in the era ironically when 2001 came out and was a hit where mm-hmm. there was that period in the 60s and 70s when people were just like i want to see something that's going to blow my mind and there was maybe a little bit of that in the in the nine, end of the 90s, but it felt like 90s and early 2000s, it was like things had to be a lot cooler and grayer. Like the movie that it reminded me of in some ways was when I went to see Being John Malkovich in the theater. And I was like, oh, this is a kind of movie I haven't really seen before. Like this is something, but that movie aesthetically and tonally in other ways is much more like kind of, even though it has a heart, it's like more cynical and it's just not bright the way this is. And I wonder if, it's, it would be a tough sell pretty much anywhere. There is like a mainstream version of this movie to be made, but then it just becomes like the never-ending story, you know? Right. Not something or, that, that has that same kind of depth to it.
1: Or The Princess Bride. I think I was like – it was kind of like parts of this were like – Across from Days of Heaven and Princess Bride, when I was, when I was thinking of yeah. when I was watching this.
0: Yeah, it's completely lacking the humor that tends to make fairy tale movies palatable mm-hmm. for adults. If anything, it's it's self-serious. It's kind of uh huffy and and pompous and self-important in a lot of uh in a lot of places in a lot of ways. And it is kind of a fairy tale movie. It's also kind of a head film, you know? Mm-hmm. It's the the kind of film that might have taken off after one of the the various waves of acid or, uh, you know, other hallucinogenic drugs that made people seek out movies just entirely for their their visual presence. I could feel I could see this like finding a different kind of cult following in a different era, like just entirely as a like drop acid watch it in the theater kind of experience. But as far as finding a mainstream audience, it's so lumpy. In some ways, you know, the uh, the emotions are kind of all over the place. The humor where there's humor is very subtle and wry and and in some cases strange. It's just it's not a laugh along movie. It's not a laugh aloud movie very much at all. And when you look at fairy tale movies that that really made it big, there are things like Shrek or the Princess Bride, that are self-aware, that are meta, uh, but are also just kind of like mocking the idea of fairy tale stories. And this movie is all in on fairy tale stories.
2: What's ironic is that it's like it's all in on fairy tales, and yet it doesn't follow the usual path of a fairy tale. Whereas something like Shrek or Princess Bride, just for the record, I'm a, I'm a big Princess Bride fan, I'm not a big Shrek fan, but uh, they, those follow a much more traditional fairy tale plot but they're kind of like poking fun at it. Whereas, yeah, this one is not poking fun at fairy tales. It's saying these are very powerful and they it could change someone's life to either be told or to tell the right fairy tale. But the tale itself is bonkers. Like it's so it's not it's not following the usual template that we're used to. And uh it will introduce something and then immediately steer away from it to drop into something else, and then it will come back around and it'll bring up a location just because the location is gorgeous, or it'll have, there's a, a stop motion animated segment in the middle of the movie that's not really part of the fairy tale, but it's part of how the girl is feeling during a traumatic experience. And it's like, the movie is just kind of throwing things at you that you're not prepared for. And I think that's that lumpiness you're talking about. Is like, it's, the movie is not helping you through the situation. Like the movie is like, this movie is happening. You better get on board <laughs> or else, or else get out of the way. This movie is not accommodating you. And yet, yeah, I find it so very powerful. And at the end, very uplifting, but not, it's like uplifting, but not in a happy way. It's like uplifting in a like, yeah, well, in life every now and then we find things that we can hold on to that make life a little better as opposed to Princess Bride. It's like, even when they're in trouble, they're still kind of happy, you know, and still they're being, they're literally surrounded by fire and a rodent is biting off Carrie shoulder and there's still like silliness joy to it, you know? Yeah. It's more like a, It's not, I would want to say like it's more like a Grimms Brothers fairy tale, but it's not even like that. It's like a, there's probably some non Western form of fairy tale storytelling that is closer to it that i don't know
0: you could call this a hans christian anderson fairy tale i mean hans christian anderson fairy tales routinely ended with the character that you cared most about dying in a tremendously angst-stricken kind of way in order yeah. to illustrate christian piety and uh you know devotion basically and that doesn't exactly happen here but that kind of downer ending as sort of uh, emotional uplift was, was really common in his fairy tales.
2: Yeah, that's true. Even in like the narrative style, like if you ever pick up a book of like Native American stories or like Chinese folktales or ghost stories, you're reading it and you're like, I don't understand. Like, I know what's happening, but I don't know why things are happening. Like, and there's a little bit of that in this movie where it's like, in Hans Christian Andersen or comes or, or fairy tales, it's kind of like the character does this. And then this happens, and then this happens, and as a result, this is the ending. Whereas you'll pick up these other stories and they just operate by a different logic that is not as intuitive to me, an American Jewish man raised on Bugs Bunny cartoons, essentially. And like, so it's like, like, there's there's parts where I'm like, okay, I get this, I see where this movie's going, but I don't know why it's going there at this moment as a story that I really like it a lot. You know, it's like the opposite of a check your brain at the door movie or a parallel to that, where it's like a check your expectations at the door movie, where it's just like, don't try to get ahead of this movie. Like, don't don't do the thing where you're watching. And you're like, OK, now I see what the hero's going to do, because like that you're it's just going to th- throw you off, you know?
0: Yeah, an awful lot of this movie is accru- accoutrements that are there because Tarsim likes some aspect of the storytelling. I mean, it starts with this group of six friends who each have vendettas against this evil man. And we never learn very much about the evil man. He literally is just this sort of like shadow of uh, a villain who doesn't indicate like much about himself you know if this was a disney fairy tale he'd get a song he'd be an important part of the story he'd be probably a fun figure that we would enjoy spending time with and instead he's just you know who really cares he's the bad guy because this story is being filtered through Roy, the Lee Pace character who has kind of cast uh, the, his rival, the man he hates as the villain. He's just this sort of distant, I don't know anything about him except that I hate him kind of figure. And we've got these six men in kind of a Western style fairy tale, or, or even a Chinese style fairy tale, like a, a story like The Three Brothers, each of them would do something really significant, like each of them would have skills that they would bring to bear that would be very important. And this movie sort of faints in that direction, and then just doesn't go very far with it. Like they're mostly yeah. there for imagistic purposes rather than uh, key narrative purposes.
1: Well, Lee Pace's character has some real limitations as a, as a storyteller as well, too. He's just kind of making stuff on, uh, as he goes along through a, through a morphine haze half the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So part of that is uh, one of the, one of the stories that fascinates me so much about how the story was written behind the scenes. It's partially based on this Bulgarian film called yo ho which I've never seen or found any way to see. It's partially based on him working with a young actress. He Tarsim sat down with her when she was four years old and started kind of telling her bits and pieces of the story and asking her what should happen next. Like the the script was kind of drawn in part out of improv with this very small child, which is why it reminds me so much of the the comic book Axe Cop, if you guys have ever read sure. that. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh yeah, sure.
0: It just has some of that like made up by a kid kind of kind of elements, like elements are p- are picked up out of nowhere, elements are dropped, uh, bizarre things happen, things happen just because they'll look impressive or they sound cool, and they don't necessarily integrate in the narrative or ever come back and then towards the end, uh, terrible, terrible things happen, and then we just reverse them because we don't like that story. Mm. you know that's to to an adult viewer, I feel like that the big twist the the comeback from the maybe third or fourth fall of the movie like roy's was huge emotional fall after alexandria's literal physical fall just it never really feels motivated entirely It, it kind of feels like well we have to have a happy ending and i've read multiple summaries of this film that try to make it make sense but i'm not entirely sure it does on screen
2: I don't know about that. It's definitely like, I think it's maybe not the super strongest turn, but I think it's like, there's a moment where he's hurting all these people and he goes, it's my story. And she goes, it's my story too. And it's like, in that moment, I think he realizes that kind of like he's connected with another person in a way that he, it's not the person he wanted to connect with it is and that pulls him back, but it happens pretty quickly. And then the, the fantasy he's telling turns super, super like, suddenly everything's great. You know, with the bad guy, literally, the good guy has been beaten up so badly and he just gets up and decks the bad guy with one punch and the bad guy literally backs onto a sword accidentally. <laughs> like, it's that moment I always find very like, uh, I mean, I'm, y- you guys are both writers. Like, you tell stories and, like, I'm a writer, I tell stories. And, like, there's something about writing something and having it connect with another person where you're like, oh, this is a real thing now. Oh, this is something that, and it means something for them that isn't exactly the same thing that I meant for it, but it's alive for them. And that means it's alive now and it's not my thing completely anymore. And, but they don't, they don't go into any of that in the movie, you know, it just kind of like happens. And so that, that moment always, there's, there's two moments in it that always get me. And that's one of them. And the other one is, and I'm like starting to like choke up slightly thinking about it, which is when at the very end of the movie, he's kind of like, I think accepted what he can do a little bit, that he is not a star, he's not the big guy, but he means something to someone, so he's he's going to be somewhat okay. And they're watching these... They're sh- she's talking about how she's... What, whenever she sees stunts in silent movies now, she knows it's it must be Roy. And it just seems from silent movies, and she's like, there's Roy, and there's Roy, and there's Roy, and there's Roy. And it's just like that. It's the, it's the turning of these moments that are intended as like the goofiest, dumb slapstick jokes, but which were dangerous for the people doing them. Like now they're meaningful to her. And as someone who mostly writes comedy, the idea that like something you do that is meant as like a dumb joke now has a meaning to somebody that's more important to that is just like a very powerful thing. So I, so like he wrote a, he made a movie that is like, that like speaks so directly to me in a way that, and that moment speaks so directly to me when they're when she takes control of the story. But it's one of those things too where it's like, well, you can't make a hit movie appealing directly to me like that's the the i mean i guess george lucas can but pretty much nobody else can <laughs> but uh but you're right that like it's not if it's not the most convincing turnabout there is a, there is kind of a feel of it also of like we got to wrap up this movie boys like let's <laughs> <laughs> like, like let's go
0: i guess there is i mean there's sort of a triumphant sense of reclaiming the story at that point of of realizing certainly him realizing that he doesn't need to let his desire for this woman control him uh, that he can uh, choose another route and letting him kind of choose to define his own story and let a instead of claiming that he's helpless in the wake of it but I, it just it doesn't land quite as well as that like it to.
2: oh no it's just it's such a messy movie and the emotions are so messy at that point that it would take it would be a, a real feat to kind of like thread that needle and pull it off and it's it's almost like i admire the movie for being so messy in that way, it like I could see this, it being like we got to get this scene just perfect. We can't even make this movie till we get this scene perfect. But instead, being like, no, we've got to. I have to get this. It, it, there's a feeling in the whole movie of like I have to get this out of me. It's in me, and I have to get it out of me, and I have to show it to other people, even if it's not fully baked, you know. And it reminds me a little bit. We my my family and I we watched rewatched recently uh, the Muppet movie, which was a big favorite when my son was very young, and now my. Second son is just kind of old enough to identify some of the characters, and at the very end, when the ending has never fully made sense to me, where they they get their dream, they're going to make a movie in the Muppet. To remind everyone, in the Muppet movie, they're running, they're going to Hollywood to make a movie, and they get there, they sign a contract with Orson Welles' big studio to make a movie. They're on a sound stage, and this everything blows up and falls over, and then they're all disappointed, and then a rainbow comes through the ceiling, and they sing the end song. Uh, and the, and it's and they that starts with the lines, Life's like a movie, write your own ending. And for and I find it to be such a powerful moment, and I cannot explain to you what is actually happening in that moment. Like I don't understand why their movie falls apart. I don't understand why they get inspired afterwards. I don't know what the rainbow means. It's one of those things where I'm like, this movie, this like this moment is affecting me on a totemic level that I cannot explain at all. And if my kids were like so what just happened? I'd be like, I don't know. I cannot tell you why the characters are reacting this way to it. And there's a certain amount of that in the fall too, where there there are scenes where I'm like, I don't know why this scene is happening, on a conscious level. But at some some deeper primordial level, I know exactly why this scene is happening. It's just a lot. It's just a very mushy movie that way, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think an awful lot of it you can look at and sort of post justify. Like you can tell yeah. yourself the story of what's happening with Roy and why that makes the story that he's telling into the story that he's telling. You can talk about how he decides in the moment where he decides that his relationship with Alexandria is more important than wallowing in self-pity. He just dispenses of the villain. He no longer cares about the elaborate revenge that he could be creating around his rival. He no longer cares about that part of the story. So he just kind of hand waves him off. And then he, I don't know, fell on a sword and died. (laughs) There's a ton of stuff like that throughout the movie that you can go through and elaborately justify, but I just, I don't know if it's in the text necessarily. You can Mm. see it in the subtext or you can create the text for yourself, uh, but it's not always clear. So much of this movie is just more felt, I I think, and (laughs) experienced than, than thought. An awful lot of it, because he wanted it to be such an emotionally real movie, you know, a lot of this film was shot uh with hidden cameras with the uh little girl that starred in it kind of being deceived into believing she was in a documentary about uh, a paralyzed person which one of my my favorite stories from the set is that they just had Lee Pace uh pretend to be a paraplegic for months uh, he he did not get out of that bed and move around on his own the entire crew thought he was a paraplegic and it's because Tarson believed that the crew would treat him differently if they realized that he had the use of his limbs. So they created this illusion. It, like He and, and one of his producers and one of his writers, I think, were the only people who knew, well, and obviously Lee Pace, that <laughs> Lee Pace, <laughs> Even Lee Pace <laughs> thought that he was paralyzed <laughs> for the whole movie. Hypnotizing him into that <laughs> was one of the many things they did for that film um but they created this illusion around this little girl they there there are a couple of scenes that are shot that feel very intimate that are lee lying in his hospital bed uh with a little girl like sitting at his feet and they're talking and they're surrounded by privacy curtains and she didn't know that the cameras were there she didn't know that there were microphones there at times she whispers to him trying to make sure that nobody else hears and it's just there's an intimacy to this movie that feels real because it is real, but it it contributes to that kind of narrative lumpiness because this isn't scripted you mm-hmm. can You can literally see him in some shots like kind of trying to cajole her back towards the plot of the movie, cajole her back towards the role the the lines that she's supposed to say, the next shot that they need to get to go forward, like he is actually interacting with her as a person rather than an actor. And there's just, there's so much of this throughout this movie, but it's, as a result, it's just a bunch of different movies. It's a bunch of different movies with her at a bunch of different ages at a bunch of different levels of understanding of what she's participating in. I, I wonder to this day, if the, Sequences where he's telling her about everybody in the story dying, and she's weeping hysterically. Like, did they do that to her? Did they put her through that? Is like, is there any acting going on there, or did they just like torture this child emotionally until she wept for twenty minutes so they could get the shot? I don't know. It's an uncomfortable uh, question, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to because I love the movie so much. I would like to think. Oh no, no, no they told her. But I guarantee, I, I'm so the, the part of my brain that understands that there's no justice in the world and, and things like that <laughs> like the the part of my brain that i that I don't allow the, most of the time to talk is like no there that was they were definitely were making her believe this thing which is terrible. and it's like uh there's the scene in uh under the skin is it the skeleton handsome mm-hmm. movie where there's just a kid crying on a beach and i like and it's so terrifying and it, i hate the moment cuz i'm like oh that kid, they had to have some kid like that kid wasn't acting like he's too he's like a toddler like he or, or he, you know he was genuinely upset and they just had to leave him crying there on the beach and it was so and i so i guess it's probably like that but the part of me that wants to enjoy the movie without feel, feeling guilty <laughs> is like oh no yeah yeah no i'm sure no no that was the one part where they didn't the one part where they didn't and that's the the strange thing about this movie is it's like in that way, it's like equal parts Baron Munchausen and like Borat, mm. you know, in a strange combination where it's like this, this lush visual fantasy, but also like we're going to have these scenes where we're like not being honest with the other person in the scene and they don't really know what's going on. And we're not making fun of this person. So it, I kind of feel better about it, but it's definitely the ethics of it are questionable.
0: That is a horrifying comparison, and you are exactly right. <laughs> that is that is a terrifying way to look at one of my favorite movies of all time. But it's it's pretty perfect.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm not happy about it. It's again that's that that part of my head. Um, when I watch the movie the next time, I'm going to quiet it down so I can just be yeah. like, oh, but look at the the same way that like if I ever watch the birds, I just go like, Shh, quiet conscience, quiet. Like you know, I I, I just I just want to pretend everyone was on the
1: same the page. The horses in these are scenes, fine. You know? <laughs> you know, I'm sure I'm sure because I can enjoy yeah. this western. <laughs> Thinking about what actually, <laughs> what happened to the horses? Peck and Paul took care of everyone, I'm sure. Oh, oh, well, that's oh, well God. with
2: with westerns, it opens up such a such an even galactic sized can of worms because it's like okay. Every the, the way people are being and animals were being treated on the set, I gotta set that aside. What it says about one particular type of human being and their role in, in the history of this country. Okay, I gotta set that aside. There's so much. That's if I can, and I love westerns. If I can love them, I can just I can mm-hmm. I can ignore anything basically. So,
1: <laughs> so you're gonna come back for our special cannibal holocaust uh, uh, episode then, right? <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. boy, I'm sure that turtle wow. is fine.
2: He's, yeah, that was a stunt turtle. They ahead of time they filled out all, all the waivers, and that's the uh, it's funny because that's that's the movie that pops into my head where I'm like, mm. well, at least I don't like Cannibal Holocaust, I can stay pure that way, you know.
0: <laughs> is this movie more ethical than Cannibal Holocaust? <laughs> if so, I'm good.
2: If so, fine. That's my that's my baseline, which again is a super easy to pass baseline, like it's difficult to not overcome that one, but yeah, it's a, this is one of those movies that for a number of reasons, I didn't even think about that one, but it, where it's like, there's a few movies that I really love that I never totally feel comfortable recommending to people. It's like, I want to make sure I know the other person really well. Like, I wouldn't mm. recommend this movie to my mom or like my coworkers offhandedly. But if like, I know someone really well, then I'm like, here's something you might like. And most of the time when I've recommended it to people, they've liked it a lot, but it's, I'm like pre-screening that recommendation so much because it's a movie that it's almost, I think almost imagine more people would enjoy it with the sound off than watching it as a movie. Cause it's so beautiful. You know, the thing that I always say about blade runner is that I wish it was a coffee table book. Like I like blade runner more, <laughs> more as a coffee table book than as a story. And I, there might be the way a lot of people would feel about the fall, you know, cause it's, it's so gorgeous to look at, but it is, you really have to, you really have to be on its wavelength to, to get the stuff out of it. And There's definitely things about the plot that I didn't pick up until I'd seen it probably three times, you know. Like there's (laughs) clearly like there's a nurse that um, the little girl likes, is is particularly friends with at the hospital and she wants Roy to be in love with this nurse, but the nurse is in a relationship with one of the doctors, but that you Mm. only know that because of one moment that you see between the nurse and the doctor. Like there's so much going on at this hospital that we only get brief glimpses of, which is exciting once you've figured it out because you're like, oh, there's so many... There's, so, there's just so much life going on in this thing. But while you're watching it, you're like, who's this person? Like, what are they doing? Like, what is this moment about?
1: I why is this happening? You know, there are not many moments when, when we're outside of uh, the kid's perspective either. Are, are there? They were kind of like limited to her point of view on, for mu- most of the movie. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's yeah. very much her story. The, the fact that the amount of action that we get without her on screen is still taking place in her head is still specifically her vision of the story she's being told is kind of a way of keeping her on screen even when she's not on screen. She's the filter through which this entire movie comes. And that is part of what makes it uh, so so sort of like lumpy and distracting is this idea that everything we're experiencing is filtered through somebody whose understanding of the world is not formed yet. So when we see things like that moment with the, the nurse and the doctor, she doesn't know what she's seeing. She runs into a man from the x-ray room who with like wearing heavy lead armor in order to uh, protect him from the the x-rays and she doesn't know what she's seeing it it's like he's some sort of monster that's stepped into the real world she doesn't know how to interpret this image and so we're not given any explanation for it there's just there's a lot in the film that we have to kind of come to with adult eyes and interpret for ourselves in order to understand like all of these little nuances of the film, but we're not being fed these explanations because she doesn't have them. She has to just sort of interpret everything imagistically and eventually put it into the story to try to make sense of it in her world.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a very it's a very Fisher King moment. I mean, this this movie reminds me a lot of other movies without really being like any other movies uh, as well. Like like have you both seen *The Spirit of the Beehive*? Yes, I yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of – I mean, just, just sort of a child, like, you know, surrounded by uh, death and other things that she can't quite understand and, like, you know, trying to, to interpret it through, like, some sort of narrative, you know, storytelling framework. I mean, it reminds me of that. It uh, reminds me of a little bit of a Jodorowsky film, but without all the, you know, the hatefulness and violence, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's you know. like
2: she's imagining a Jodorowsky it's, – it's almost like the movie is, like, to make a Jodorowsky movie, you have to be a child. Like, so mm-hmm. this – what's going on in her mind is a Jodorowsky movie, but otherwise – no one else is going to think of these things. But yeah. th- it's interesting. Spirit of the Beehive is another one where like when I saw it, it really took me a little bit of times afterwards to like piece together what had been happening around mm-hmm. the girl. Or like um, Cria Cuervos, the Spanish movie, mm-hmm. which was from around the same time as Spirit of the Beehive, I think, It's is another one where it's like a little girl who's dealing with basically the the – Grief over her mother's death, I think. I'm trying to remember exactly even what happens in it. But it's like the characters who have died are still coming back because she's – like Mm -hmm. she is kind of half imagining, half assuming that they're still around. And so you really have to figure out what's going on in it. Maybe that's part of the – it's like The Fall is one of these movies that if it was not in English – might have had a better chance in some ways because people would be like, oh, it's a foreign movie. Well, let me get ready for something a little bit different. You know, Mm -hmm. the way that uh, uh, on the flop house, a long running uh, saying of mine is also that if I know who killed me had been an Italian, people would be like, oh, look at the way it uses color (laughs) and things like that. And like that you, you kind of go into a movie with certain expectations based on the kind of thing you're seeing. And there's something in a way that's almost jarring about see- about the fall being in English and feeling mm. at times like an American movie because it's not told like what you're expecting from an American movie. It's like um unless uh, unless like upstream color is the kind of American movie you're you're most used to seeing or something like that. It fe- there's something that kind of feels foreign about it in the way that it's it's told that way. But a lot of it is is like you're already saying filtering adult things through a child's perception and I don't know now that now now I no longer think it's unique you convinced me
1: it's now it's
2: not it's now just the latest in a long line of uh, kids being confused by adults movies
1: <laughs> no but it, it is for for all it's you know echoes of other things I think it is, is a singular film and uh, we should probably wind things down but I think we can all safely recommend the people uh, seek out this film through whatever way you seek out this film these days. I mean, hopefully it'll turn up on a stream- streaming service at some point. I mean, it would be great. I mean, this is where the revival begins. Maybe this, this, this yeah. podcast episode is you know is a little ripple that turns into a big wave and, and, and suddenly it's, it's, a, it's a big film all over again. People are rushing <laughs> to Amazon to, to
0: buy it on VHS, suddenly convinces everyone that it's time for the fall again.
1: I mean, at the very least, this
2: movie should be on Canopy. Like, they, mm-hmm. like, at the very least, like, yeah, you know. for
0: sure. Uh, your your canopies. I mean, I I, I want to see it on Criterion. I think it's a extremely weird masterpiece, but that it's a masterpiece. Uh, But yeah, your your canopies and your movies of the world. Uh, why aren't you embracing this film? For God's sake, uh, pick this yeah. movie up. People need to see it. Well, I mean, very I w- specific people need to see it. Very
2: spe- Yeah, not everybody needs to see it, but the people who need to see it really need to see it.
1: <laughs> well, Elliot, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, maybe I mean, we have, have, have to have you back sometime, but where can people find your work these days?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Elliot Kalin, Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T-T, two L's, two T's, and then Kalin, K-A-L-A-N. Uh K-A-L-A-N. I have a new picture book out that was mentioned earlier called Sharko and Hippo, uh, which is a uh, Marx Brothers-inspired story of a shark that wants to go fishing and his friend the hippo who keeps handing him things that are not what he's asking for. Mm. Uh, it's basically the, uh, very indebted to the uh, to the picture-stealing scene in Animal Crackers and, uh, and over at the Flophouse podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. Those are the main places that you can see me. There is a thing that I'm going to be doing soon that will be seen by many more people than I think I've ever seen anything I've ever done, but I can't really talk about it at the moment. Oh. And it will not be as exciting as it sounds. It will be for me, but so, but I'll I'll tell you guys about it afterwards. But uh, but those are the main things. I would say pick up Sharko and Hippo at your local bookstore. Uh, follow me at Elliot Kalen and listen to the Flophouse and you'll get, that'll be as much Elliot Kalen as anyone needs, frankly.
1: <laughs> and it, well, you also have the, uh, you also have the I Claudius podcast, right?
2: Oh, right, right. We uh, Also on Maximum Fun, yeah, John Hodgman and I did a 13 episode miniseries where we, we did a recap and a discussion podcast about I Claudius, the 40 some odd year old uh, BBC miniseries about the history of ancient Rome. And, it is it was so much fun to do, and I had never seen that series before, and it is just a phenomenal television series, like the production values are garbage like it's it looks very cheap, but the acting and the writing are some of the best of any television show I've ever seen in my life, and there's so much in it that is so horribly politically apt and appropriate right now. There were so many moments in this forty four or forty five year old mini series based on a book from the 30s about history from 2000 years ago, where I was like, that's a little on the nose eye, Claudius. <laughs> like, the sc- the scene where Caligula declares himself a god and Claudius is like, yeah, now everyone will see Caligula's crazy and they'll overthrow him and we'll be a republic again. And the senator, literally the senators are like, we can use this. Yeah, yeah, we'll go along with it. Yeah, you're a god. And Caligula goes mad with power. Like, I was like, all right, okay, I guess nothing's new. Like, there's, really, <laughs> like, it's, there's no new things. Uh, so, yeah, uh, try out iPodius. It's it's super fun. And it's got John Hodgman in it. And, you know, he's respectable. <laughs> he's, he's he's approved of by the
1: establishment. I, I still need to check that one out. I cannot recommend The Flophouse highly enough, though. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts. Tasha, where can we find you these days?
0: I'm the film and TV editor over at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson.
1: And uh, I'm Keith Phipps. You can mostly find me here. I'm on Twitter at kfips 3000 I, I write for a bunch of different places, like uh, you know your uh, your Vulture and and your Mel magazine, and you know do the previews for Rolling Stone. I write for the Ringer. I'm working on a book about Nicolas Cage movies, and uh, that's about it. Well, thanks for everyone for joining us. We'll wind things down with that, and goodbye. <laughs>